Tonight we are uh, continuing in what we've been talking about all semester uh, and taking a look at the, uh, the book of Exodus in the Bible, which is a very clear picture of the way that God uh, brings people from slavery into freedom. And so that actually happened for the, for the nation of Israel, and God brought them hello, uh, from slavery in Egypt to freedom into a new land. But it kind of mirrors and parallels how God brings people from slavery to sin into freedom and new life in Christ. Um, tonight, I, I got a lot of this info um, from a guy named Brian Sorgenfry and another guy named Les Newsom, and I've listened to them a lot this semester, and they've been really helpful. I just want to give the credit where it's due. Um, before we read this passage and talk about what to do with the law, there's something we really, really, really have to understand about this. Because if we don't get the order and the timing and where we get the law and where God's law comes in this story, then it actually it totally screws up the whole message of Christianity. Okay, so we have to get it that uh, in chapter 19, if you look down, we'll read it in just a second, God tells um, these people, he, as he's speaking to this nation of Israel, he says, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's him saying, I, I very clearly brought you out of Egypt miraculously. You had nothing to do with that. I saved you. And on, in chapter 20, God starts out off the Ten Commandments or the law by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's saying that because he's saying you have to get that first. You have to remember who I am before you ever hear what it is that I want you to do. And who I am and what I've done for you before you ever hear my commandments for what I want you to do. Sorry. And so God is saying I've saved you. Now obey me. I've already redeemed you. I've already called you to myself. Now obey me. What does that mean? It simply means... That for us tonight, our obedience to God and to His law has nothing to do with your salvation. It is not what saves you. It is a response to God saving you. So let's, uh, let's read this passage, and then I'll pray for it and for our time together. Uh, but this is Mo, uh, Exodus chapter 19 for 12 verses, and then chapter 20. I'm going to read the Ten Commandments, which... For some of us, it may have been a while since we've ever done that. Um, but Exodus 19. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had got, gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people together said, answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. 
And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, which just means to set them apart, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And down into chapter 20. And the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the, smoking, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let me pray for us real quick. God, I pray that you would send your spirit to open uh, the eyes of our heart and the ears of our hearts that we might see in this passage our great need for, for a Savior. And that we might see in this passage the great Savior that you have provided, even Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would meet us here very very personally and in very specific ways to where we are. And then as you do that, that you, through this process, would call us to live in community with each other and to share our struggles and our burdens with each other because we were never meant to carry them alone. That's terrifying, but it's possible if you send your Spirit to help us do it. So we pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. So look... Um, I left my phone down there, so that's going to kill this illustration. But, um, hey, look, no one's watching. I'm just going to get it. Um, this, my friends, is an iPhone. Um, if I have this phone and I come to you and say, this phone is terrible. This is a, this is a stupid phone. It doesn't work. 
You're going to look and say, Brent, what do you mean? So, well, I was hanging pictures the other night, and I got my phone out to hammer it in, and it wouldn't work. And the screen shattered again, uh, and it, was, it just didn't do the job. And you'd look at me and say, you are stupid. Um, iPhones aren't meant to do that. It's like, well, I thought they could do anything. And you would say, no, they aren't to be a hammer. They aren't made to hammer in your pictures in the wall. You're making a wreck of your phone and you're calling it bad, yet you're the one who's the idiot. You're using it for a purpose that it was never intended to be used. Look, I think that there is a ton of inherent confusion over what to do with the commandments in the Bible. What do we do with the law of God? And when I say that tonight, I'm primarily referring to the Ten Commandments. What do we do with those? I mean, they were written however many thousands of years ago. Do they matter? Should we follow them? Do we have to follow them? If I'm a Christian, didn't Jesus do all that for me? And there's tons of confusion over what they're to be used for and what they're not to be used for. And so in order for us to even have a chance at getting the picture of what chapter 19 and 20 are telling us here, we're going to have to kind of look at it in big, at, a, at a high level, in a big overview And the way we're going to do that is to ask, what is the purpose of the law of God? And we're going to use three metaphors to try and answer that question. The first one is this, is that the law, we're going to view the law as a portrait. Secondly, we're going to see the law as a, excuse me, as a frame, as a picture frame. And thirdly, we're going to see the law as a mirror. And those three things will hopefully help us to clarify what we do with the Ten Commandments. So the law is a portrait. Portrait of what, you're thinking? The law is a portrait of God's character. The law, when you read through the Ten Commandments, you see something of the very nature of God Himself. He is saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm like. Now, if someone were to come and do these things perfectly, were to kind of come up on the scene and do all the Ten Commandments and just nail it, you wouldn't just be saying, man, that guy is awesome, or that girl is really neat. You would call them God. Because He's the only one who could fully and perfectly do all of these things. It's really interesting then that when Jesus came... And he walked around in Matthew chapter 5, 17. Matthew records him as saying, look, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. What he is saying when he says that is, I am God. I, I obeyed everything perfectly to a T. I did it all. Okay. So growing up, uh, my family and I, we would go, my, not my family, uh, my parents and I, we would go to Colorado on vacation a lot during the summers. And there was this really pretty spot where we would go uh, take picnics and that kind of stuff, and it was called Spring Creek in, in south-central Colorado. And um, in Spring Creek, they had a sign up next to this trail that, that headed up to this beautiful, like, meadow uh, with, that had this old haunted house. I don't know if it was haunted, but it freaked me out as a kid. And so uh, this, this trail headed up there, and right at the trailhead, there was a sign. And the sign said, do not drive ATVs up this trail. You know, no motorcycles, no whatever else. And it said, and pick up after yourself. Pick up your litter. Um, you know, if you take trash up there, if you go up there and have a picnic, pick it up. 
And that made me mad as a child because we had an old motorcycle up there that I would ride everywhere. And so I got angry. But now that I'm a little more refined in my style, you can laugh, um, I get it. I understand that what those laws are trying to do says something about the very nature of what is beyond that sign. That it is saying there is something beautiful back there. And these laws are merely saying it is something to protect that beauty. And now God doesn't need protection of His beauty. But what we do when we see these commandments is we see something of what is back there. In our case, something of what is out there. Something of God Himself. And so when I saw the laws and when I began to understand what they were there for, look, they weren't oppressive to me. I began to understand that in order to enjoy that space, in order to enjoy that meadow that was up the trail, I needed to pay attention to it. And I wanted other people to pay attention to it also so that I can enjoy it. And I would suggest that if you never find yourself enjoying God, at least one of the reasons for that is you don't care anything about the commandments. You don't care anything about them and you don't seek to, to live under them as a Christian at all. So what were the people of Israel supposed to do with this? You know, they just get these commandments off of a, a smoking, fiery mountain. God gives them to Moses and he comes down with them. And maybe what we're asking is, what does it have to do with me? Well, think with me for just a sec. Go, go back a little bit in the Bible, actually to kind of toward the beginning. After God created the world and he created Adam and Eve uh, in that world, he created Adam and then Eve, he looks down and says, and it says, then he, created, then he created man, male and female. In his image, he created them. It says, in his image, that God looked down and he created man to be like him. Now, he didn't create us to be gods, but he said, you are like me. It's like a little statue. You're meant to show the world, to show everything what I'm like. Now then, as the story goes, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they fell into sin and everything begins to come unraveled. But before that happens, man was in God's image. And what he's saying, what that means, is that in our very makeup, hardwired into who we are, is this idea that to live according to the law, the Ten Commandments, is what, it, is what you were made for. And so to do that will, be, will bring about the most contentment in your life, the most joy. It will make you fully you to, to do that. Now, it's impossible for us to do, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But that's what we were created for. We were created for glory. We were created to do this very thing. Now, hold on to that. We'll come back to it. So then there's this idea that um, it's a portrait of God's character, but also that it's a portrait of God to the world. That He didn't just give the commandments and say, look at these so you can have all this, you know, be educated about who I am and have this great knowledge. He says you're, su you're supposed to do something with this. In chapter 19, verse 6, if you look down, God calls His people as He's looking out to them, He calls them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, most often when the Bible uses the word holy, it's not talking about what we think of as holy, as someone who never does anything wrong, you know, kind of this little perfect angelic person. What the word holy means is set apart for a specific task. 
The pots and the pans and the temple were called holy. They weren't like these perfect people. They were pots and pans, but they were set apart. They had a purpose. So God looks at them and says, you are a kingdom of priests. You are a whole nation of priests. And you're set apart. Now, what does it mean to be a priest? A priest simply means a go-between. Someone who goes between God and man. And so he's looking at this nation and saying, look, what you are to be is a picture of who I am to the world around you. So as you follow this law, as you live in obedience to who I've called you to be, to this image of God, then the world looks at you and they see something of of my nature and of my goodness. And then he spells out what that looks like to be holy and set apart, and he gives them the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And so if you are a Christian tonight, your job is to reflect the character of God to the world around you. That is your calling. That's easy, right? Not so easy. Um, and so even though we fail dramatically at that, I do want to ask you, you know, Bear is asking, is there any way in which your life actually does reflect the image of God? Is there any way in which this campus around you would look at the way you live and the decisions you make and say, that's interesting. That's not like everyone else around me. That, that guy or that girl is doing something different. They're living differently. They're treating people differently. They are using their money differently. And so usually when we start doing this, the conversation immediately goes to alcohol. And it's like, well, I don't know. I'm not drinking, so obviously I'm being a good person. That's really unfortunate because usually we miss a lot of the weightier issues of the law if we just make like alcohol this most terrible and awful sin. So let's talk about some other things. The Tenth Commandment talks about coveting. It says, do not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's stuff or his mule or donkey, you know, whatever. So let's think about this in our day. Do you look around at what God has given you in your life and are you content? Or are you always grumbling and complaining about the things that you don't have and what God hasn't given you? And I would suggest that if there is something of... If if we are Christians, if you are a Christian, then as God is at work in your heart, He is going to bring you to a place where increasingly you can look at what He has given you, your lot in life, and say, this is enough. This is enough. I'm not in need. I may want tons of things, but I don't need them. And maybe to actually get them might be not good for me. So do you covet or are you content? What about on down... When it says, do not bear false witness, what does that mean? It means that you're not to be gossiping. You're not to be lying about the people around you. You're supposed to be truth-telling to people. And so, guys, uh, when you have a friend who is living in consistent rebellion against God, and they claim to be a Christian, and you have someone who's just consistently doing these things that are destructive to, to him and to others, Are you going to just tell him that everything's okay? That he's doing just fine? No, that's not that big of a deal. When in your heart of hearts, you know it's a big deal. And you know that for him to keep doing that is going to destroy him. If you don't tell him that, you're bearing false witness. 
You're not being honest to Him. Christians are called to be truth-tellers. We're called to move toward people and to be honest with them. Um, Tim Keller is famous for saying that, that reflecting God and obeying His commands should make Christians look distinctly different from the kinds of people around us and the culture around us. He says that our culture is promiscuous with sex and stingy with money. But commandments 7 and 8 say that Christians are to be marked as people who are promiscuous with our money and stingy with our sex. That we are to be people who give our money away in droves and just give it away in spades to all kinds of people in need. But that we hold closely our bodies because God said there's something special about us. There's something really spiritual going on when we give ourselves to people in that way. And so is that true of you? Are you promiscuous? Are you lavish with what God has given you? And are you close-fisted? Are you prude with what God tells you is, is a wonderful gift? but they can easily distort who you are and who you think He is. <laughs> the law serves as a portrait. But that not, that's not all, all it does. It also serves as a frame or a picture frame. So think about this then. But it's a portrait, but it's also the frame that could go around that portrait. Now what does a frame do? A frame does a couple things. It protects the picture, but it also promotes the picture. So it protects it. At least the frames that I buy, they have a piece of glass on the front of them, the ones at Hobby Lobby that I'm thinking about right now. Um, They have a piece of glass on the front of it. It protects the picture. It protects what's in there. This is how obedience to God's law works. Law-keeping to actually do what the Ten Commandments say if you are a Christian. Again, you've already been cleansed by God. You are right with God. You have been saved, brought out of slavery. The response to that is to obey the law. So to do that is going to keep you protected in some way. It's going to keep you from destroying yourself. Look, as I mentioned earlier, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's first law, they did it to their own peril and destruction. He looked at them and said, if you eat of this one tree, you will die, die. You will certainly die physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Everything is going downhill. And so what he's saying in these commandments is to go against them and to willfully disobey what these things say is actually to bring our own ruin and destruction on ourselves. To do that is to sin against yourself even and to bring mental ruin that you won't think the same way. Physically, you will be damaged. Emotionally. You will be run dry physically, spiritually, all of it. It is to your own destruction. And if you don't believe me, freshmen, ask some of the seniors who are in here who have done things in college that they're not all that excited about. And they could look back and say, yeah, that's true. That when I wanted to live for myself with kind of no regard for what God was calling me to do, it actually did deaden my mental capacity. It actually did wear me out physically. 
It actually did emotionally deaden me. Take their word for it. Take my word for it. But not only does it protect, the frame also positions the picture. And it highlights what's good about it. It helps us enjoy it. Look, remember in Exodus 19.6, as you look down, he calls them to be an obedient people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says they're a treasured possession. But there's this idea that you won't enjoy being a treasured possession of God until you take up the practices that He likes. You won't enjoy who you are as a son or a daughter of God, bought and brought into adoption through Jesus, until you do the things that He likes. Think about this, and Les Newsom had this illustration. I think it's pretty good. He says, imagine dating someone for a while and then getting to that point where you have the talk. You know, the talk. And you come away and it's just amazing. And we're boyfriend and girlfriend now. And we might have even made out. All that stuff, right? Um, look, imagine that talk going somewhere, something like this. Okay, look, I know that you hate cigarettes, and I know that you're allergic to cigarette smoke, and I know that you're really into your faith, but I'm just kind of not that much into it. And you can kind of go to church, but I really don't care about that. I know that you're really into art shows and museums and that kind of stuff, but I just think it's silly. I think you just stand there and look and you make something up in your mind. I think it's kind of weird. Okay. If you, if someone is DTRing you, right, you're trying to define this relationship and you're about to be boyfriend and girlfriend, and they go in to put the move on you for a little smoochie at the end of that, you're going to look at them and say, no, I don't want to be your boyfriend. No, I don't want to be your girlfriend. Are you kidding? You want nothing to do with me. What you just told me is that you don't care about me. That you want this relationship and you care nothing for me. If you love someone, you will learn the things that they enjoy. And you will want to do them because you love them. And in doing them, you will begin to enjoy them as they smile, as you receive their smile in doing that. And with God... If your relationship with Him is really just all about you and your own comfort, and you kind of look at Him and say, God, look, I know that you think those things are important, but I kind of don't. I'm just going to do what I want. And God looks at, at, at you and wants to say, you, you don't love me. You want nothing to do with me. You're using me for an emotional crutch, or you're using me for some sort of spiritual escape so you can feel good about yourself. And so you can ask yourself, do you love the commandments? Do you love God's law, not because of what they do for you, but because of who He is? And because it will help you to enjoy Him. Because He said, you were meant to function in this way. Do this and you will be fully you. Or do you look at them and just say, no thanks. In so doing, you have to hear him say, I'm not sure we have a relationship here. I'm not sure that what we have is real. So the law is a portrait showing us the character of God. And it's also a frame protecting and promoting. But the law of God is also a mirror. And this one, you know, I don't know if this is the most important, but it's pretty important. 
But it's also kind of humorous, because if you look down to chapter 19, verse 8 in your handout, after Moses had given them some initial instruction, because you don't exactly know what it is, the people look up and say this. The people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They're like, yeah, we can do this, God. We got this. Moses, we're going to do this. We got it. Well, that means that they really think that they can keep up the requirements of living in the right, you know, rightly before God. They think they can do it. And God's response to, to this, to their response, is that He essentially looks at Moses and says, yeah, Moses, you need to get them ready for what's about to happen. Um, clean your clothes. Get your garments clean. Set them apart. Consecrate them. Because in three days, I'm going to come and give you the clearest picture of who I am and what I want you to be as my people. And right there in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 12, he looks down and says, and if you think you can just kind of approach me on your own goodness and come to me on your own terms, if you think you can get close to this mountain or touch it, you're going to die. Why? Is it because God's mean? No. It's because God is saying, I am so infinitely pure and spotless and holy that if you actually think that you can keep my law, if you actually think that you can follow me and do all of these things, then you're hopelessly naive. And I just want to warn you on the front end, you can't come to me that way. The people don't really get it, though. And then God shows up in this thundering cloud and in this massive pillar of fire. He descends on the mountain. And it says the people hear the voice of God as He is up there talking to Moses on the mountain. And when Moses comes down, down toward the end of chapter 20, or what you have there in your handout, 19, verse 19, they've got a new attitude. After the law has been given, and God has given them the Ten Commandments, and the clearest picture that they have of Him to date, the people's response is a little different. They're trembling in fear because they realize that their statement that all that the Lord has done, we will do, they realize that that's a sham, that that's a joke. That there's no way they can do it. Because when they saw the law, this stupid microphone, they saw, when they saw the law, they saw what true holiness was. And it terrified them. It shook them to their core. And they said, Moses, we can't talk to him again. Will you go talk to him for us? Will you stand between him and us? Because if we get close to him again, we're going to die. We are so impure compared to His purity. We are so, uh, so unholy compared to His holiness. And in so doing, the law achieved its purpose. Its purpose of being a mirror because it showed them what true holiness was. What, we, what real righteousness is. And when it did that, when they looked in that mirror of what true holiness and what true rightness and goodness is, they saw that they were dirty. You know, it's just like, you really don't know you have stuff on your face after you eat a big meal until you go into the bathroom afterward and you're looking in the mirror and you're like, oh my gosh. you got crap all over your mouth, you know, and you're just looking at your friends, you're like, why didn't you tell me? But the mirror shows you what's real. 
It shows you who you really are, and that's what the law of God does. It functions as a mirror, and when we look in it, we see that we're dirty. And we see that if we're going to be in the presence of God, then we can't just come on our own. Something has to clean us. But look, the mirror isn't what can clean us. If you look in the mirror and it's showing you that you're dirty, you don't take it off the wall and like start, you start to rub it on your face. That would be stupid. So what happens? What the mirror does is it points you to something else. And it says, you need something else to come and clean you. You're lost and I can't help you. You need something else to come and clean you. Some of you, though, are exhausted and you're tired, and you're worn out, and you feel dirty in your life, and you really can't figure out how to be any better. Because what you're doing is that in some sense you get your dirtiness. You get that you're not a good person, you're not perfect or whatever. You know, you kind of look in the mirror and you've seen that. But what you've done is you've responded by saying, I'm going to go be better, and I'm just going to start doing these things. I'm going to start waking up at 6 a.m. and reading my Bible and praying. Or I'm going to start doing whatever. Stop cussing, or I'm going to stop smoking, or drinking, or sleeping around. Whatever it is that you say, I'm going to stop doing this. What you're doing is you're trying to take the mirror off the wall and use it to clean you. And it's exhausting. You realize that it doesn't work, and you're not any better after all of your attempts and efforts at doing that. Why? Because it's a mirror. It's not soap. It can't clean you. It wasn't meant to. It was meant to show you that you're dirty and to point you to something else. If you read the law of God and you begin to see that you're dirty, then it has accomplished its purpose. It showed you that your hope of coming into God's presence on your own is hopelessly naive. And the people of Israel, when they saw God's presence, when they got the picture of Him, they cried out and said, Moses, this is too much. Come and you talk to God for us. We don't want to do this again. We're terrified. We're scared. Go represent us before God. They're crying to Moses to be a mediator for them, a go-between, a priest. And when we get to the New Testament in the Bible, it's so beautiful. Because the book of Hebrews is practically screaming to us and saying that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to be the greater Moses. He came so that when you looked at your filth and your sin and your guilt and your shame and everything that you do that has you wallowing in depression and anxiety and filth, Jesus came to represent you to God. He came to be a mediator, to stand between you. But He's greater than Moses. He's more than just a mediator. He is also God. He is the one who did the law perfectly. And so what that means is that when he comes before the mirror of God's law, he claims his innocence. He says, I did it. I can rightly stand in God's presence and not be scared. And what he does with that is that at the end of his life, he takes his innocence and he, in an unthinkable act of love, he offers it to us. And he says, I will give you my innocence so that you can go into God's presence without fear and without trembling, and I will take all of your filth on me. 
He takes everything that you fear that you are and all the things you've done, all the things you fear you will do. He says, I will take all of that onto me. I can bear that for you. And I will give you everything that I've done and everything that I am. And you can bear that for me. And so how do we respond to that? Cool, Jesus, thanks. Now I'm just going to go do all this stuff to earn it from you. He's going to say, don't be stupid. It's a mirror. You can't do that. All you can do is receive it. Receive who I am. It's a gift. And I'm giving it to you. You have to receive it by grace, through faith. All you can do is believe that I am who I said I am, that I am God. And that I am enough for you. You don't have to add anything to your salvation. And it means that if you believe that, if you would dare to believe that good news, that it means that you are a new creation. That you are declared new. And here's the beautiful part of that. That God has promised that He will send His Spirit to be at work in you and to begin to remake you into the image of God that you were created to be. That God is by His Spirit, once you come into, back into relationship with Him through Jesus, He is sending His Spirit into you to begin to recreate you. And He breaks you from your bondage to sin and everything that is undoing you. He breaks you from that. And He says, I'm going to start polishing the brass. And I'm going to start remaking you so that when your friends, when the world around you looks at you, you are going to be loving because I'm loving. And you're going to be kinder than you once were because I'm at work in you, making you more kind. And it gets us to that point where we can sing the chorus to a song that we sing sometimes in here. And it says this, that to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to see that Jesus did everything for you, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, that you are, you are forgiven, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. If you look at the Ten Commandments as things that you have to do, then you don't get the Gospel. But if you can begin to look at them and say, you know what, God has freed me from everything that I feared most. And I love Him for that. And I want to enjoy Him and who He is and who He's recreating me to be. So you can look at the commandments and the law of God and say, I want to do that. I want to respond by doing that. You will never do it perfectly. That's why Jesus came and did it for you. But we respond by saying, I want to do that. Do you respond that way? Let's pray.